Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. We're going this year on a journey with Jesus, and we're doing it by going through the book of Luke. And so we're going to, Luke is kind of a historian, so he kind of lays out the life of Christ in an orderly manner. And uh, we're still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And today we're going to see Jesus gathering together a band of brothers to be his followers. And these men are people he's going to call his disciples or learners. They're men he is going to pour his life into Men he's going to pass his ministry on to when he leaves. These men come from all different kinds of backgrounds. They are fishermen, tax collectors, political zealots, and ordinary folk. But not only are they common people, they're also imperfect people. They're sinners. (laughs) And in the gospel, we see that Jesus takes sinners and transforms them into instruments for God's use. Well, what's truly amazing to me about these men, however, is the fact that when Jesus calls them, they get up immediately, leave everything behind, and go with him. So that's what we want to talk about this morning. In Luke 5.11, we're going to see that there's fishermen who, when Jesus calls them, they pull their boats to the shore and left everything and followed him. And then in Luke 28, we're going to see that Levi, a tax collector of all people, when called by Jesus, got up and left everything he had and followed him. And so my question this morning is, what was it about Jesus that caused these hardworking, ambitious people to so quickly give up everything they had in order for them to become his disciples? And as we go through this, we'll see that Peter encountered Jesus' power in a way that knocked him to his knees. And Matthew experienced God's grace in a way that overwhelms him. Now, Levi and Matthew are the same person, so they use the name Levi here in this text, but it's also Matthew, the person who wrote the, the Gospel of Matthew. So first of all, then, uh, we're going to see how Peter saw Jesus' power. We're going to see Peter, a catcher who gets caught, a catcher of fish who gets caught by Jesus. And and, and the first thing we're going to see, we're just going to kind of walk through the passage here this morning, but the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus has a kind of strange instruction for the fishermen. In the first four verses, we're told that one day Jesus was standing by the lake uh, Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were now washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And when he sat down, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, and let down the nets for a catch. Now, now the job of a fisherman in Jesus' day was a hard job. 
The kind of fishing we're talking about here is not line fishing, it's net fishing. And notice the fishermen here were washing their nets when Jesus found them. They were net fishermen, commercial fishermen. They made their living by fishing. To be a fisherman in Jesus' day was a kind of a year-around job. They worked hard in the heat of the summer and the cool of the winter, often at night, often through the night. And they would put in long hours. And the nets they fished with were heavy and hard to work with. On this occasion, Peter, his brother Andrew, and his partners, James and John, had spent, we're told, the entire night fishing. It was backbreaking work because it involved letting this giant net down in a semicircle encompassing over 100 feet, drawing it back into the boat repeatedly over and over again throughout the night. It was work that only strong men could do. And we're told that these men labored all night without any results. And now they're tired, they're discouraged, they've begun the tedious process of cleaning their nets and putting them away, a real downer after working all night with nothing to show for it. <clears throat> you know, one of the most important tasks fishermen had was caring for their nets, and their nets were made um, usually of linen, a common fabric in the ancient Near East, and they had to be very careful that they were cleaned properly and dried each day, or they would quickly wear out and rot, and they wouldn't be any good anymore. So a great deal of a fisherman's time was spent caring for his nets. The boats were already in at the shore. The nets had been stretched out on the ground. This meant they were done for the day. It was time for their nets to dry in the sunlight so they could be folded and put back in the boats. A rather normal routine for these men, but today's going to be anything but a normal day. While they're working on their nets, uh, Jesus is teaching right where they're at by the shoreline and there's a huge crowd pressing around him, and he's getting so engulfed in the crowd he can't be heard. And in order to get some separation, he asks if he could sit on Peter's boat. And Peter agrees and takes him a little way out from shore, so there's a bit of a distance between him and the crowd. And the water can help amplify his voice, and he can be heard. And he speaks to the crowd, and we're told in verse 4, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your net down for a catch. Now, now think about that instruction, okay? Jesus told Simon to go back fishing. The last thing these men wanted to do was to go back and fish. Their nets were already clean, a huge job. Must have seemed presumptuous for Jesus, a carpenter, to tell professional fishermen how to fish. <laughs> and yet he tells them to go into deep water and let their nets down for a catch. So secondly, we see Peter's reluctant obedience. And you can understand that. <laughs> Peter's fished all night without catching a single fish. Peter knew it wasn't even the best time of day to fish. He had already put his gear away. You know, I'm trying to help you understand what that would be like. Um, and the best analogy I could come up with is, say you've been working in a restaurant all day, 
It's been a hard day's work. It had been a really busy day, but now in the evening, it's been really slow, and nobody's been coming in. And so you clean up early. You get ready to go home. The stoves are clean. The dishes are clean. The floors are clean. And 10 minutes before closing, a group of 20 people walk in. How do you feel? <laughs> you may have to serve them, but you're going to feel reluctant, right? And Peter shows reluctance when he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. We've already done the work. We know what we're doing. We've worked all night. We've spent all this time. But <laughs> because you say so, we'll go back out in the boats with all the nets, throw them back in the water and do it once again because you tell us to. And you can kind of sympathize with Peter's skepticism but what's important here is that in spite of the fact that he's reluctant, he still obeys. And he says, but because you say so, I'm going to let down the nets. And we all know what happened next. There's a miraculous catch. When they had done so, when they let down the nets, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. These are strong nets. These are big, heavy nets. And for them to begin to break, this is an overwhelming amount of fish. So they signaled their partners in the other boat who had also put their boat on the shore and were done for the day. And they urged them to come out and help them. And they came out and they filled both boats so full they began to sink. You know, it touches me that Peter was willing to do what Jesus asked of him, even though he was skeptical about it. Hey, you know, have you ever been reluctant to do something you felt God wanted you to do, but you did it anyway? You know, it encourages our faith when we see Peter obey despite his reluctance, especially when we at times struggle with doubts of our own. It's helpful to know sometimes that the disciples had doubts too. But what happened to Peter is what Luke hopes will happen to us. And that is that Peter learned to trust Jesus when he says something, even if it's in an area that he thinks he knows a lot about. It took a, a miracle like this for Peter and his mates to understand who Jesus was, but before they saw the miracle, they had to do what Jesus told them to do first. And when they obeyed, they had the biggest catch of fish they had probably ever seen in their life, in fact, they, they had to call their partners to come and help them, filling both boats till they begin to sink. It, it was a catch of a lifetime. It's the kind of catch a fisherman will talk about for the rest of his days. It was a miracle, something that went beyond the laws of nature. Fourthly, then, we see Peter's repentance. Peter, when he saw this, we're told, fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had just taken. When, when Peter saw what Jesus had done, he realized that Jesus was in a different class than him altogether. And Peter recognized at that point that he was a sinful man. You know how ashamed he must have felt that he had doubted Jesus. And how could he have thought that he knew better than Jesus? And in seeing this miracle, Peter came to understand that he was in the presence of someone in an altogether different category. And by contrast, he himself was a sinner unworthy to even be with Jesus. 
And then we're told about Peter's decision to follow Jesus. We're told in verse 9 that he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. So they pulled their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. This incredible miracle was a, a picture a, of what Jesus wanted these fishermen to do with the rest of their lives. He was calling them to a new vocation. It was a decisive new direction for Peter's life. From this time forward, he would be an evangelist. He would be a, a catcher of men. And then what's so powerful to me in this story is that when they were called, these fishermen left everything behind with complete abandon. They left their boats, their fishing gear, their careers, their families, their security, even their right to rule their lives, and they went with Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. It means, in some way, leaving everything behind, everything to follow Jesus. Philip Ryken points out that many people say they want to follow Jesus, but instead of leaving everything behind, they try to take everything with them. They call themselves Christians, but they're not willing to give up selfish ambitions, sinful pleasures, comfortable surroundings, bitter grudges, precious idols, are simply the right to live their life the way they want to live it. <laughs> he says, imagine if Peter and his fishing buddies had tried to follow Jesus without leaving everything else behind. Imagine them trying to haul their boats and nets around to every town they went to where Jesus preached. Obviously, if they had tried to do that, they would have never been able to follow Jesus at all. And he says, how foolish it is for us to pretend that we are following Jesus when in fact we want to keep our lives intact the way they are. True discipleship is always costly because it means giving up what we want for us so that we can have what Jesus wants for us. True discipleship is a radical commitment. It's what this passage, I believe, is all about. But before we go on to Levi, I want to go back and look at Peter's initial response to the miracle and compare it to a later response by Peter. And in it, I want to see G Peter's growing comprehension of Christ. We're going to compare Luke 5 with Matthew 21 here. And I'm sorry, it's one place in your... your, your uh, it's not Matthew 21, it's John 21. And I wrote it wrong in your outline too, somewhere. But, but notice that... When Peter discovers there's more to Jesus than what he thought, he realized he was a sinner. He realized he didn't qualify to be in relationship with Jesus. He felt too bad about himself to even be in Jesus' presence. And, but there's something kind of interesting about Peter's response to Jesus' self-revelation, and that is that there's actually two occasions where the same kind of miracles performed for the disciples. Here, when they're first called and come to Jesus, and then at the very end of their time together, at the very end of 
Jesus' life, and just after, actually after his death, after his resurrection, they have another experience where the same miracle takes place. The second occasion was, like I said, following the death and resurrection of Christ. It was just after Peter had committed his greatest sin ever. He had publicly denied that he even knew Jesus at his crucifixion. You all remember before the crucifixion at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going and you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And Peter says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I will even lay down my life for you. There's no way you're going to be able to separate yourself from me for a moment. I'm going to be faithful to you to the end. And Jesus says, "Uh, really? Is that really what you're going to do? As I tell you that the truth, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. And Peter couldn't even fathom that. And yet, despite Peter's good intention to be faithful to Jesus, he denied his Lord and Master. This was a sin for which Peter could not forgive himself. In fact, Peter was so defeated by his failure that he seems to have given up his call of fishing for men (laughs) and gone back to his secular job. Peter, we're told in John 21, told his partners, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Does that sound familiar to you? They fished all night again and had nothing to show for it. Early in the morning, the resurrected Jesus is on the, sh- the shore. Disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. The man on the shore calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they said, no. <laughs> he says, well, just throw the net on the right side of the boat and you'll catch some. <laughs> they did it. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, said to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for it had been taken off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards, but he couldn't even wait for the boat to land. He's in the water, running through the water. When he gets to the shore, there's a fire burning, there's some fish on it, some bread, and Jesus is there. Now, what fascinates me as I read this is how differently Peter responded to Jesus this time compared to the first time. Both times, Peter, in Jesus' presence, is overwhelmed by his sinfulness. But on the first occasion, Peter wanted Jesus to get away from him. Here, Peter, after a much worse sin, the sin of denying Christ, feels an urgency to get together with Jesus. He jumps in the water. He can't wait for the boat to land. He he runs through the water to the shore. Kent Hughes says this, in moral agony and Christ's presence at the early stage of his spiritual development, Peter, feeling unworthy and not understanding what he was saying, asked Jesus to go away from him. (laughs) 
But as Peter grew in his knowledge and experience with God, Peter's consciousness of sin drove him to Christ. Timothy Keller develops this idea a little bit further. He says this. He says, at first, Simon Peter felt pretty good that God, Christ had chosen him. But then when he saw who Jesus really was, he said, go away from me because he felt so inadequate and sinful in his presence. Keller says, the closer you get to Jesus, the more his presence traumatizes you. (laughs) You realize you can never be who Jesus wants you to be. Then he asks this, he says, what changed for Peter? What made Peter the Peter of John 21? He says, remember that the Peter of John 21 was, has not seen Jesus since he denied him three times. He, he has all this unresolved guilt, and, and, and he's more aware of his sin in John 21 than he was in Luke 5. Peter now has spent three years with Jesus, and he knows what Jesus expects of us and how we're supposed to live. He has a tremendous uh, desire to please his master and, and, and he had this huge test of the crucifixion and he failed it miserably he denied him he chickened out he was a coward and yet this time Peter couldn't get to Jesus fast enough why what happened and Timothy Keller suggests that what happened to the Peter of John 21 is that he now has comprehended the gospel <laughs> Keller's point is that when you understand why Jesus came, it makes you want to run to Jesus, not run away from him when you sin. And Keller asks, how are you approaching Jesus? Are you relying on your morality and your ability not to fail, your ability to be good, to live a life pleasing to him? Or do you understand the gospel that you're saved completely through what Jesus did for you on the cross? He says, here's the way you can tell how you view Jesus. Ask yourself, are you the Peter of Luke 5 or the Peter of John 21? (laughs) In other words, when you feel your worst, when you've blown it in some big way, when you've done something you know is wrong, when you feel like the biggest failure ever, does that failure make you not want to go to church anymore? Does that failure make you not want to see Jesus? Does that failure make you want to quit praying? Does that failure make you feel like, oh my goodness, I can't even go near him? Or does it make you say, if ever I needed Jesus, it's now. I want to get as close to him as possible. Jump out of the boat. It doesn't matter. Swim, wade, run. I got to get there. I got to get to Jesus. In other words, does your sin drive you from him? Does it become, does it bring you into, or uh, does it drive you to him and bring you into fellowship with him? Or does it become a barrier between you and him? Does it completely block your fellowship with Jesus because you feel unworthy as a sinner? is how you respond to Jesus when you fail fail, will tell you if you really know him yet or not. It will tell you if you're the Peter of Luke 5 or the, the Peter of John 21. In Luke 5, when Peter saw the miracle, he bowed to Jesus as his Lord and Master. He was willing to leave everything to follow him, but the separation between him and Jesus was acutely felt, and the more However, he understand who Jesus was. The more he felt this gap between them, he understood Jesus was in another category altogether. He felt like he couldn't even be in the same boat with Jesus. 
But after he's been with Jesus three years and beginning to understand his mission, understand that Jesus came for the sake of sinners like him, after Peter had come to know that Jesus that way, he wanted to run to Jesus, not away from him, which version of Peter are you? How well do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as the giver of a grace that is greater than all of your sin? Secondly, then we see that Levi was also willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. Levi experienced Jesus' grace. Now look, look at Levi. He's the unhealthy one who needs a doctor. In verse 27, we're told, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. (laughs) And don't let let this just kind of blow by you, but it says, and Levi got up, left everything and followed him. (laughs) Now, it's important to understand that tax collectors were notorious sinners. They were people who had grown wealthy off the backs of common people in dishonest ways. You know, we always talk about how bad tax collectors were in Jesus' day, but I'm not sure we really understand how bad they really were. Ken Hughes explains. He says, Levi was a tax collector for the Roman government. The Roman collected their taxes through a system called tax farming, They assessed a district, a fixed tax figure, and then they sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. The buyer then had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the year and could keep whatever they had gathered above that amount. He says such a a system invited extortion. The potential for abuse was further aided by both primitive record-keeping and limited means of communication in the ancient world, both of which made it difficult for people to verify when they were being exploited or appeal it. The system was a breeding ground for exploitation. Tax collector could stop anyone on the road, make him unpack his bundles, and charge him just about anything his larcenous heart desired. And if the traveler couldn't pay it, the tax collector would offer to loan him money at an exorbitant rate. Jewish tax collectors were the most hated people in the Hebrew society. They were despicable rich vermin. They were classed with, in Luke 18.11, with robbers and evildoers and adulterers, with prostitutes in Matthew 21.32, and with pagan Gentiles in Matthew 18.17. They were hated. They, They were robbers. They were tools used of the Romans against their own people. Tax collectors were so despised that they couldn't even serve as a witness in court and they were excommunicated from synagogues. In the Jews' eyes, low life like Levi and his friends were the lowest of the low. That explains why in verse 30, the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to that to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't even imagine that Jesus was willing to associate with people like that. In their eyes, Levi was an unacceptable candidate for discipleship. 
When Jesus called Levi, he called a man everyone hated, a man some wished would be judged by God instead of blessed by God. Here was one of the greatest instances in the New Testament of Jesus' power to see in a man not only what he was, but what he could be. Now understand that being a tax collector, Levi loved his wealth. Tax collectors in Jesus' day chose money over relationships. The only reason a man would, would bid on being a tax collector was to get rich. He loved money more than he loved his people. And we all know people who, in their ambition to make money and have lots of things, put acquiring wealth above everything else, above their relationships. The last thing people like this would ever want to do is give it all up and follow Jesus. They're like the rich, young ruler who goes away from Jesus sorrowfully because he had great wealth. How many of you know that our things can keep us from following Jesus? You know, we all think we control earthly wealth real well, but are we willing to give up earthly treasures in order to give our allegiance to Jesus and to make him the true treasure of our lives? Calvin Miller um, warns us that we can allow petty things or lust to keep us from a love affair with God. He shares that in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, his book, The Great Divorce, there's a story of a man who arrives at the gates of paradise with a lizard on his lapel. And the gatekeeper announces that lizards, lizards are not welcome in the New Eden, and to get in, he has to throw the lizard down and stomp it to death. This will demonstrate that his heart is ready for the new world. The man desperately wants to enter paradise, but the little lizard has for a long time been his intimate friend. How can he just give up his fondest preoccupation, this thing that's been so dear through him, to him throughout his earthly existence? How can he bear separation? What will heaven be like without his companion? And Lewis's point seems to be that this beast, this controlling addiction, which started as a small indulgence, eventually became this man's master. And this demonic little creature had remained front and center throughout this man's entire lifetime. It had spoiled his appearance. It had made constant demands on him. It had soiled his clothing. It had burdened him with weariness. It had robbed his, this man of the life he could have had. Nevertheless, it lived there with the man's permission, giving him a measure of companionship. How could the man give it up now? The ugly little lizard had become the focal point of his life. He cherished the scary little addiction that had kept him from the great abundance that God had for him. Finally, though the man tears the lizard from his clothes, he throws it on the ground and stomps it to death. And when he does, the corpse of the little creature is then transformed into a majestic stallion on which the man rides through the gates of heaven into triumph. Apparently, abandoning this indulgence allows a man to ride into fellowship with God. 
And the point of the story is how the pennies of our affection often keep us from the true treasures that God has for us in life. These, these earthly things that are worth so little keep us from the great wealth of heaven. We can't fellowship with Christ while being consumed with keeping up with the Joneses. Earthly pleasures amount to nothing next to what God has to offer us. But sadly, it is worthless things that keep us from true heavenly wealth. So many of us are addicted to useless, worthless trinkets of this world. Calvin Miller goes on and talks about the fact that we're junk collectors. He shares that a person from the third world country was visiting America and they were asked by an American what was the most unforgettable thing that they had seen in the West. And without a hesitation, this woman said, the size of your garbage cans. <laughs> in America, we made consumerism a god. We try to have it all. We can't conceive of giving up any of our obsessions for God. But without a spirit of renunciation, we can't follow Christ. We can't take everything with us. We have to hold things loosely in this life. We can't let them capture our heart. But we try to follow Christ stumbling along under the heavy burden of excessive luggage. We can't. Each time we're tempted with a new home, new car, new clothes, new electronic gadgets, we feel the tug between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The two treasures go in opposite directions. As Matthew says, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And so Calvin Miller says, to move toward ownership in one realm is to distance ourselves from the other. We are only true followers of Christ, however, when our greatest desire, the greatest passion of our heart, the greatest longing of our heart is our Savior. But too many of us realize it or not would rather have our things than to have Christ. John White put it so well. He says this. We would like to believe that our treasure is in heaven and that heaven is our real choice. But earthly treasures continue to attract. We may not want outrageous wealth. We would be content with just reasonable financial security. But we don't want to miss out on anything either. He says, we're like the, money, the, the monkey with his fist in a jar of peanuts. The monkey wants both freedom and peanuts, but he can't have both. He has to let go of the peanuts to get free. He says, we're spiritual neurotics trying to embrace worldly addictions and renunciation at the same time. When Levi encounters Jesus, we're told he leaves it all behind. Verse 28, Levi got up and left everything and followed him. That's a huge for Levi because he's wealthy. He made the opposite choice of the rich young ruler. Luke's point is that Levi made a decisive break from his old life. These would no longer be the things he was living for. Money would not be his God anymore. And the fact that he left decisively here is seen clearly in the, in, in the words that are used here in this text, the, the, the verbs and how they're, they're, they're written. It says the, the statement that he left everything is an aorist participle in the Greek, which means it was a past definitive action. It took place. It was over and done. He left it. He left it behind. It's done. 
And the statement that he followed Jesus is an perfect indicative. Literally, he continued to follow Jesus. He was continuing to follow Jesus. It describes a continuous ongoing pattern in his life. And in doing this, Levi made a substantial sacrifice because, as I said, he was wealthy. But apparently, he's not all sorrowful about what he gave up because the first thing he does is he has a great big party to celebrate what he has found in life. We're told that Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating there with them. He brought all of his friends in. He found something greater than all he had treasured so long in his life, all the things that he had worked so hard to acquire. He found something that meant more than that. He wanted all of his tax collector friends to discover what he found. He threw this big party. Jesus was there and all of his tax collector friends were there. He's given it all up to follow Jesus. And the legacy he leaves us is the book of Matthew. Isn't that incredible? But the Pharisees, we're told, are upset by this. They're upset at Jesus' identification with sinners. Told in verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sects complain to his disciples, why are you guys eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? When Levi has a great party with Jesus being the guest of honor, the Pharisees are critical. His attendance, they feel, is communicating acceptance of sinners. But Jesus is a different kind of religious leader. Fourthly, Jesus explains that he came for sinners. Jesus answered, it's not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' whole mission is seeking out those who are separated from God. Those who have served earthly idols instead of the true God to bring them back into a relationship with God. He came to seek and save the lost. The Pharisees avoided sinners. They didn't want to be contaminated. They didn't want to be corrupted. But Jesus is all about the recovery of sinners. And Jesus uses an analogy to explain his actions. He uses the analogy of a doctor. He says a healthy person doesn't seek a physician. Only sick people do. He says, my mission isn't for the healthy people, it's for the sick people, it's to call them back. The image he uses is strong because when you go to a doctor, you know several things before you go to a doctor. First of all, you know you're sick. <laughs> you don't go to your doctor if you don't feel a need. Secondly, you, you know that it's, you're sick and you can't help yourself. You need help beyond yourself. In other words, Jesus goes to those who realize they have a need and they need what he has to offer and Jesus calls the sick to come in to God's grace. I want to close this just asking a couple questions here. Do you feel too bad to come to Jesus because of some failure in your life? Do you find yourself kind of withdrawing from him because of that? Do you feel you're never going to be good enough to relate to him? If you do, you're like 
the Peter of Luke 5 instead of the Peter of John 21. You don't even know Jesus yet. Jesus came for people like you, sinners. That's his purpose in coming. And Jesus is saying no matter how bad you've been or how far you've drifted or how low you've gone, you can always come back to me. His call of these disciples is a really beautiful thing. And it's a reminder to us that we're all the kind of people that Jesus accepts with open arms. All we have to do is come and acknowledge our need. He comes for the sick, those who need help, those who can't help themselves. And if I understand right, that's both you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of scripture I pray that we would be overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ the beauty of Christ in comparison to the even the other spiritual guides that were trying to help the people during Jesus's day who had missed the whole point of God's plan for the ages the redemption of people I pray Lord that even those who are followers of Jesus here, when we sin, the, the last thing we would do is withdraw. When we fail, that we would not feel like we can't come to Jesus. We have to stop praying. We can't qualify to really be a participant at church or anything like that. Lord, help us to understand how much we desperately need Christ. And then meet us at the point of our need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.